This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase. From New York City, it's the Todd Berry Podcast. The Todd Berry Podcast. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Uh, Welcome. Today on the show is Dave Gorman. He's a friend of mine from the UK, the United Kingdom, England, Great Britain. I think you can use all of those. I think you can use all of those. Anyway, I've worked with him a lot in festivals all over the world, Scotland, Australia, uh, England, and uh, he's a really interesting guy. He's a funny guy, has some great shows that I've seen, and has written some books. Uh, I've got some shows that you could see. February 4th, it might be February 4th right now, Rohnert Park, California. Then I'll be in Sketchfest in San Francisco, the 5th through 8th. Traverse City, Michigan, the 13th and 14th. Bethlehem, PA, 21st. Columbus, Ohio, the 5th. Bloomington, the 6th and 7th. That's Bloomington, Indiana. South Bend, Indiana, March 8th. Asheville, the 17th of March. 18th of March, Durham. March 20th, Wilmington. 22nd, New Brunswick. Then I go on to Annapolis, Hattiesburg, Athens, Portland, Maine, Hampton, Connecticut. There's going to be some others added to that soon enough. And uh, what else? Feral Audio. They bring you this podcast and many other podcasts. You should go to feralaudio.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Todd Barry. ToddBarry.com. And here is Dave Gorman. Dave Gorman, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you very much, Todd Barry. Welcome to New York. Welcome to the United States. Thank you very much. I, I don't feel like I'm here until you have personally <laughs> made that greeting. I know. I usually do it at the airport, but I, <laughs> there was all that snow and stuff. Yeah. So I uh, had to let you go come here on your so own. Th- there wasn't actually all that much snow. I know. And then now people are mad at the weather yeah. people for not. I've been in New York through two harsher winters than this one. Yeah. And... So I was expecting real bad. Cause I, you know, I've been here through a New York winter before. Yeah. So I was expecting really bad stuff, and I can't quite work out what's going on. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I mean, clearly, the the really bad stuff is not that far away. Like Long Island's pretty bad. I, I think is that right? There's there's places that have been hit quite badly. Yeah, I know. Like in New England, it got really yeah. bad. But that's quite a lot of miles away. That is. I don't. That's my way of dodging not knowing what happened in Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine and i'm kind of good about the immediate area and then whatever i pick up on the news that's you know i think that's all you really need to know about is your immediate environment you're basically a baby <laughs> i am all you know that exists is what you can see and touch and feel and everything else needs to be proved to you I, uh, in I, some way i am a huge baby <laughs> that works <laughs> no i mean man now i'm thinking about that now i feel like i'm being just uh Self-deprecating. I'm a man. Okay, never mind. I'm a baby. (laughs) 
You've been in New York a lot of times, right? How many? Do you know how many times? Or um, performing only. I've done two previous runs that were meant to be six weeks each, and they both turned into three months, um, which is why I say I've done like two winters because you know I ended up here till Christmas twice, right. and that's that's quite a, a thing to do to a Brit. And I've been here a load of other times to do little tiny things, but there's sort of those two times when I was here for three months. It's I I find myself sometimes like talking to people in England, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, I I lived in New York sometime," and I and I realize I know that's a grand overstatement of what I did. I visited for three months. Three months but is three months is not yeah. a holiday. It's not a vacation. That's not that is a bit. You, you know, I had an apartment, and I was I felt like I was living by the end of it. Yeah, I think if someone told me that we lived here for three months, I would go, that's not lots of vacation, because yeah. I've never gone on vacation for three months. The first time I came, I was, uh, you know, naive, young Brit, and, and the promoters sort of took me aside and explained how you, you've got a tip in a bar and all these, these little cultural things. We don't do all of that in, yeah. in England, right? And they probably overdid it. And uh, and I remember them saying to me, you know, and sometimes, you know, you, you dollar a drink, and, and sometimes the barman will get you a drink, and that's kind of, you know, how it works. And then I spent three months and no barman ever, ever <laughs> bought me a drink. And then on my final night, I was in a bar not far from where we are right now. And um, I had a, a few rums and I was tipping. And the guy bought me a drink. And it was the day before I flew home. And I felt like I'd finally acclimatized. Like I was now naturalized. I understood New York. I had a barman buy me a drink. It was the most exciting. <laughs> it's like, oh, it really does happen. Yeah, it was proof. I think they call that a buyback. Is that right? Yeah. I uh, I think what I think what some people do is they they throw down a big tip with their first drink order, uh -huh. like maybe over tip, like, hey, I'm letting you know I'm a player, <laughs> and then they I think it's going to come back to them. doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely not in my nature. No, if they uh, if they hear that uh, British accent, and they get anything, they're like, oh my god, is that right? Something. Well, I mean, I I think it's just it is just a different thing. Although I am I am often um, I'm often mistaken for Australian. In oh America. really? Yeah. I don't know. I did. I was doing some. I toured the states one time, and I think I was in Cleveland, and they had me going doing like three different breakfast shows mm -hmm. in quick succession on the radio. And the first two, both in the middle of the interview, would sort of say, "So how are you finding it? You know, you're here from Australia." And I was like, "You've got a press release in yeah, front of you describing British comedian." That, that's you know, not even about the accent. Where did just, that come from? Yeah. And and they they're just like, "You just sound Australian to us." And I asked somebody later in the day and said, why do you think so many people think I'm Australian? And he said, you don't sound like the Queen or Hugh Grant or Tony Blair, and you don't sound like the Beatles. And that's kind of the two accents that we know are British. <laughs> and so they're just sort of guessing. They're thinking, well, speaks English, not British, not American, probably Australian. That's where they right. land. Right, and also didn't read the press release. And but... also mainly didn't read the press release. Yeah, that's, even so, that's, that's maddening. Kind of weird guesswork. Yeah, I... I... I still sometimes try to guess someone's accent, and then I feel like I just go, where are you from? Then I go, is that annoying to ask where someone's from? But then I said, I wouldn't care if someone asked me where I was from. I guess, you know, <laughs> I, Brits will mistake a Canadian for an American, often. Uh -huh. And you know, and some Canadians have an accent that is easily confused. I think I'm fairly good at picking a Canadian accent, but I understand that. that but Australian and British doesn't sound, I don't get that there's anything. Yeah, there's a pretty clear distinction between those two. Yeah. I guess you know I've done a road trip across the states and things, and I've been in I've been in parts of the states where you know the coasts are different, obviously, and are slightly more cosmopolitan. And 
in there are parts of America where I've been where they've never heard in the first person anything other than an American accent, and like waitresses were freaking out. Really, that they were meeting a Brit. Like they'd never ever in at, in their actual company encountered a real foreign person, and that was exciting to them. You should uh, reveal those cities and. 500 British dudes will move over there. <laughs> oh, exotic. No, Finally, won't. I can be exotic. <laughs> There's not a lot there. <laughs> that, where was this? Like, you know, uh, it was this... kind of in the middle of, of... No, I did like a road trip where I drove from San Diego to the coast to coast, basically. Uh-huh. But went all the way up north into Idaho and then down into Utah and then across and, and stuff um, a while ago. And I can't remember whereabouts it was, but I was with a, a female director who's from the north of England... Actually, only probably from like a hundred miles away from where I'm from, and we were in a diner, and she ordered something, and the waitress just properly lost her shit. I mean, like the most. Oh my god, where are you from? This is amazing. Called other people over and made her say the order again because she just like this is incredible. And I don't know, she just like an omelette or whatever it was. Uh, and then she said, "Okay, what do you want?" And I ordered, and she did it again because to her it was a whole other act. She's like, "There's two of them." They sound we sound kind of alike to us, yeah. but to her we sounded so radically different that that was a, a thing for her. That's that's pretty cool. That yeah, you'd think you know someone from England would have made it. Yeah, I guess we, we were really off the tourist trail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where it was, whereabouts it was, but I know we were somewhere where tourists don't normally go. That's when you were doing that. Uh, that special, which I saw, was it a special or a series? It was a it was a one off, a kind yeah. of feature length documentary where you um, only went to independent owned business, independently that, owned business. Right? That was the theory, yeah. To kind of, it wasn't a big sort of political thing. It wasn't, um, it wasn't me being Michael Moore or uh-huh. anything. It was more kind of. I grew up in in a world which was very uh, you know, American TV was so big when I was a kid, and things like the A Team and. Dukes of Hazard and all that sort of Starsky and Hutch. These were like huge things, and so America was this very romanticized world to a kid growing up in the seventies and the eighties in in Britain, and and then I'd been to America and toured in a way that I kind of fell out with the promoters, and it wasn't a very happy experience, and and all I saw was kind of chain hotels and radio stations and theatres. I, I didn't have any time off, and I did, like, four months yeah. on the road in a pretty soul-destroying... That's kind of you know, four months where you don't see anyone you know or love. and That's kind of weird. And I I just wanted to come back and see a real America because I didn't feel like I'd seen it. I'd been here for a long time without really seeing it. And so, it was, to me, it was more about nostalgia, about kind of finding the America that I used to see on TV as a kid and these kind of... Real people doing real things rather than you know, a hotel in Minnesota that looks exactly like the hotel you were in in Idaho. Yeah. That's just, that was doing my head in. So it was, it was more about kind of discovering that. But it was a great, great fun thing to do. I drove an old um, big Ford station wagon like 3,000 miles, 6,000, 4,000 miles, something around America. And it was just you and the director hanging out, right? Yeah, although... And I guess a crew. No, no, it was just literally just me and a director who was self-shooting and the first director ended up doing her back in and had to leave the shoot so i spent a, a week in moab utah waiting for a, a, a new guy to come out and take over and with hindsight i kind of enjoy the fact that only me and the car did the whole journey like no nobody else did the whole journey one person came as far as moab utah right and then had to bail and another guy came and did from there down to sort of georgia 
What did you do in Moy Abbey for a week? I uh, I rode bikes. I hired bikes and went out. I was so we were the night before we got to Moab. We were in a place called something like Green River or something. It sounds kind of quaint, but it was scary. Kind of Wild West truck stop kind uh-huh. of place. I mean, it was really there was nothing there. The motel was crawling with roaches. We went to a bar that night. There was it was me and the female director. There was one other girl one other woman in, in this bar, and there were guys taking a video camera and putting it up her top, and she was sort of joining in, but sort of not, and it felt really aggressive, kind of yeah. like everyone's transient, everyone's passing through. It's kind of mineral mining oil, I don't know what, and truckers, and you just didn't feel very safe there. And then the next day we got to Moab, and that's where Steph, this director, kind of, oh, I, I can't carry on, my back is killing me. I was so glad because of all the places in Utah, it's like the most civilized place. You I don't, I've never even heard of Mo. It's, it's fantastic because it is actually, it's got lots of kind of adventure sports. Like they used to shoot a lot of Westerns out there, like John Wayne used to stop out there for, for months. And and it's not very, it's not very Mormony for, uh-huh. for Utah. I mean, which does count for something. It's yeah. got, you know, it's got bars. You can drink. No one's judging you. It's got a bit of a tourist thing going on because of the outdoor sports and stuff. So there's like river rafting and mountain bikes. And there's a big state park out there with the kind of arch rocks and things. So if you're going to kill some time in Utah, that's a pretty good place to do it. But it, if it had been Green River, I think I'd have... Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, like, it could have ended messily. In it seems like it'd be hard to make friends in, in the place where they're videotaping the. Yeah, that was not a nice, not a nice town. But you really, man, you dove in to say like, I when I hear you like, oh, you got bikes, and you're like, I never do stuff like that. I mean, I travel a lot, but I never like, I'm going to get on a bike. Well, I, I had a week to kill. Yeah, it's true. And I, in theory, I was meant to not be driving the car because we were trying to only fill up from independent gas stations, uh-huh. and there wasn't one in Moab. And so if I'd driven around for a week, I'd have emptied the tank and then I couldn't have, you know, I would have failed on my mission or whatever. So I was kind of, you know, leaving the car parked outside the the motel and walking around this nice, quaint, kind of cowboyish town. Um, I think it made a load of money in the past uh, mining uranium before they realised that uranium was really bad for you. Uh-huh. They, uh, it was like a big... It had a big load of money in the early days. So there's a kind of old properties that are really nice, built in this kind of uranium mining boom. and It's a really nice, pretty town. Did you go to Salt Lake City at all? Uh, I did. I did not enjoy Salt no? Lake City. No. <laughs> Why is that? I, it feels like, you know when you see um, like a new building going up and they'll put like a hoarding outside just with a picture of what the building is going to look like? Uh-huh. And it's an architect's drawing. And it's... Or maybe it's created in Photoshop or something. And it's always looking pristine and all the people in the picture are smiling. And they, they make you feel like this building will be lovely because, look, there is a child with a balloon holding hands with its mummy and its daddy as it walks down the street and it's eating an ice cream. And that's what the building will look like because the people will be holding balloons and eating ice creams. And it's this kind of slight mind fuck that they're doing where they're trying to make you think everyone will be happy in this world. The people in Salt Lake City look like an architect's drawing of a happy community. It's a bit sort of um, Pleasant Valley Sunday kind of. Did you do your show there? Or what? Uh, I didn't do a show there. Um, and I did not know. I genuinely was ignorant about the Mormons. Uh-huh. I, 
I just had them filed away in my head as another branch of benign Christianity, like Methodists and Baptists. And yeah, it's a little more unusual. That. I had no idea until I was there quite how batshit crazy it really is. And they must love the Scientologists because the Scientologists take all the flack. And it's absolutely as batshit crazy as Scientology. <laughs> it's founded on a, th- a guy who found a magic book in the woods that was made of gold, who'd never held gold before and so didn't realise that the book he was describing was heavier than a human could actually carry if it was actually made of gold. And he also found some magic glasses that allowed him to translate this ancient script. And he translated it and then he gave the book back to God. And so there's no you can't prove that this book ever existed. But you can prove that the man who found it was a known con artist. Like, he's got a history uh-huh. of finding ancient scrolls that he said were this or that, and then years later when they found the Rosetta Stone that allowed them to decrypt old sort of Greek, Arabic sort of text, they discovered that he was lying. So the man's a known con artist, and he is the founder of this religion. And the religion says that Jesus travelled to America and that the Native Americans are an ancient tribe of Jews who travelled to America. And there's not one bit of archaeological evidence for any of it. And there's this huge break in the timeline. And I, like, I'm an atheist, right? But I would say that the ancient religions, Christianity and Judaism and whatever, people have been telling those stories since those stories were supposed to have happened. Right? There isn't a break in the last 2,000 years where somebody hasn't been talking about Jesus Christ. Right? It's always gone on. So true or not, something happened that people have kept on telling. With Scientology and with Mormonism... You've got, this stuff happened all these years ago, and no one talked about it for hundreds of years until a soothsayer came along and said, and this is how it was. And the fact that there's that gap in the timeline is what makes it so batshit crazy. Someone saying, 400 years ago, this happened. No one talked about it for the last 400 years. No one knew it had happened. I found it out. That's not, that's got to be garbage. Sounds like my career. <laughs> it's just like, and the much. idea that, you know, you came relatively close to having one of them as president. Yeah, he might run again. That's that is mind blowing to me. But I mean, I've met. I know some Mormons in the. I think there's different levels. I've met some Mormons and they're very nice. Yeah, like did you and go I've, to the I've temple? I've met some at all? Scientologists who are very nice. Yeah. Um, doesn't stop what they believe in being batshit crazy. And you should be allowed to say that. It isn't polite to tolerate nonsense out of politeness. That isn't actually helping anything. Like. There are lots of very nice Mormons living very nice, fruitful lives, doing no harm to anyone. I don't see a uh, a misstep in acknowledging that, finding them nice, enjoying their company, but feeling free to say, oh, by the way, I do think that religion is batshit crazy. I, yeah, those you know, things can both. They, they, they can they coexist. Can, exactly, yeah. There is a kind of... And it's, it's history of kind of political expediency as well, that there's... They, I mean, they believe there's a kind of 12 elders and, and the top guy has got access direct access to god you know he he is infallible and at some point the mormons used to think that black people were inferior and then all of a sudden the top guy decided that's no longer true and you go, what so they used to the previous infallible guy said that they were and now he then have they have they changed or what that's political expediency that's realizing that you're out of step with the world and at some point that should go oh it turns out that guy wasn't infallible oh hang on if that guy wasn't infallible What's this infallibility thing that we all invest yeah. so heavily in? That's the way I feel about when I hear about apology. I've evolved about uh, 
yeah. feelings about gay marriage. Well, the country's evolved. And yeah, now, yeah, and you're keeping... Now it. you're just jumping on board. And, and the whole thing about their kind of stance on multiple marriage. And I don't have a huge moral objection to that. And, and I think, you know, several people have made the point in the past that if some hipster dude in New York was sharing his apartment with two <laughs> chicks and they weren't married and they were all sleeping around and people knew about it, they'd be kind of cool and people would be okay with that. And then when it's institutionalised within a religious framework, people object to it. And now officially the Mormons are against it, but they became against it when they wanted to join the union, when Utah wanted to become a state and become part of that politically. All of a sudden, God decided this thing that was just happened to be really politically expedient for the people of Utah was true. I, I just don't understand how people invest so much faith in, a, in stuff that is clearly about expediency. Yeah, I went to a Mormon, um, I guess their version of like a Barnes & Noble mega bookstore. Yeah. Um, I don't know, what what's the English one? Words? Is it word? Uh, Waterstones? Waterstones, probably. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but it was all Mormon, and, it, and they had the, the <laughs> undergarments, and it was, it was kind of fascinating. I sort of, sort of felt like, oh, I shouldn't be in here. When but I, I was just uh, I taking it all I got back from the UK after that, and I'd been away for a long time. And uh, I had that kind of slight fear that, while I'd been away, everyone had forgotten me and that my career must have just slid away and what will happen? And the first call I had from my agent was, I kind of, you probably don't want to do this, um, but you've been asked if you'll be a contestant on the Pyramid Game, which uh, Donny Osmond was hosting. <laughs> Is that and, the 20, what that we call the $20,000 Pyramid? Uh, it certainly wasn't for £20,000. Yeah. It was some. It was for a cheap, small network. And, okay. Uh, I wanna, but they'd somehow persuaded Donny Osmond to come over and host the Pyramid Game, which I've seen over here. It is the same game as I've seen it on on US yeah. TV with Donny Osmond hosting. And I just, I, I, I did it because I thought no one remembers me. I want, I, somebody wants me. I'm so gra I'm so grateful for any work. <laughs> so I went and, and was a contestant on the Pyramid Game, and I just felt guilty all day because I couldn't quite look Donny Osmond in the eye because I'd I'd only just discovered all this stuff oh, about yeah. Mormons, and I just didn't know and he was lovely he was absolutely he was a gentleman you know I, I have nothing bad to say about Donny Osmond it's all about me who had just discovered how quite insane I thought the Mormons were and I didn't know how to look the man in the eye I remember when I performed there and did a club I overheard a couple come in I assume they were Mormon and they said are is the show very dirty I mean they asked yeah very polite which I think it's better to ask yeah yeah absolutely than to show up and storm out or absolutely. write a comment yeah yeah and I guess I don't remember how the person answered, like, I don't, it's not that dirty or whatever. And they came to the show and I saw them and they were laughing and they mm -hmm. were very nice afterwards. But I uh, I just thought that that's just not something I've witnessed a lot where someone going, is the show very dirty? Yeah. I don't, you know, that can come from all sorts of places. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be connected to faith and things. But I guess in, in that part of the world, you're nine times out of ten, it will be. But I think even then, I think a lot of people. And um, yeah. a lot of Mormons who would have their own beliefs about how things should be are aware that not everyone is a Mormon and will quite happily, you know, sit in a place where not drinking coffee while you drink coffee with yeah. them. And then they're not expecting everyone to conform. And while they might choose not to indulge in profanity or whatever, I think a lot of people are very capable of hearing somebody else do that understanding the intellectual ideas behind it, laughing, but not feeling like they've somehow 
sinned themselves by being in the room. I don't think it's sort of... Were you tempted to uh, talk to Donny Osmond about it? or? Uh, I wonder how he, he... I bet he would be. I feel like they must always have to talk about it. I think that might have closed down the show. <laughs> oh, I don't mean like on the <laughs> air. But like... No, it was a kind of... He did at one point make some kind of comment about, hey, I'm just a good Mormon boy as a kind of little quip. Um, and I just... I have never seen the show back. I'm probably looking aghast as the words are Did saying. you do well on the show? Did you win money for... I, I forgot think, how I did do okay. Work. I did do okay. That's where yeah. you give clues, right? And yeah, you're they... paired up with a, a member of the public and they have to kind of... I don't know. We recorded something like three episodes in in three hours, back to back, <laughs> in a very small studio with a very small audience. Do you feel like that did anything good or bad for your? It it did nothing uh, in terms of my career, um, and occasionally still gets rerun on whatever weird tiny network it's on. And so every now and then I'll just get a tweet going. OMG, you're on the pyramid game with Donny Osmond, and it'll be me from like 15 years ago, or 10 years ago, whatever it was. Do you get a lot of uh, Do you get a lot of requests for things you don't want to do? Um, yeah, a fair amount, not too many, really. I'm kind of there. There probably aren't that many. There's not that much being made uh-huh. in the UK. It's not like a a big world of that stuff. Um, but occasionally, but yeah, I think. There's a kind of the only times I mind are when people get upset if you say no, right? As if, as if, like the whole point of you asking is that I might not want to as well as want to. Um, I don't. There's a, a somebody told me this story ages ago. There's um, a talk show. It's like a really big daytime show called This Morning that used to be, used to be based in Liverpool, and uh, a couple of of comics who managed by the same people as me um, and they're, they're really big names they were invited onto this show and they lived in London and they didn't have anything to promote and they didn't have they'd never book out a DVD out they weren't doing live stuff they didn't have a TV show at the time so the only reason for going up to do the show would be you enjoy doing the show but that, that's the only reason and it was daytime and then neither of them really into it and they just said no, no thank you and they were so upset, this this show. Like, they'd never had anyone say no to them before. And it's like they didn't understand that most people are on there promoting something. They're not just doing it for shits and giggles. Uh-huh. And they were like, no, no, please, we, we, we'll we fly them up, we'll do that. And they're like, no, they, don't, they just don't really want to do anything. One of them wants to hang out with his kids. They're not, it's not their deal. And they they can't process the idea that somebody somewhere doesn't want to be on TV at all, let alone on their show. And they kept offering money, and they kept saying no. And eventually, they said, "All right, please name your price. Just tell us how this much." This was for like a chat want. show. Yeah. Oh. And they're just trying to get these two guys to come up and like talk about football or something. Um, and so the agent just named the most outrageous fee. You know, like probably the equivalent of like seventy thousand dollars for a daytime <laughs> show, which is normally not paying anyone yeah. anything because they're promoting their movie or whatever. And the tantrum, and the reason I heard about this story was that years later, somebody from the show was talking to me and said, oh, we'd love to have you on, who's your manager? And I said, so and so, like, oh, we don't work with them. They asked for however many tens of thousands of pounds for so-and-so and so-and-so. They are awful. We hate them. And when I asked them to explain why they'd... 
that was the story. It's like, yeah, if you what say didn't name you your prize, them no. saying they don't want to do it. They named their prize. You said name your prize, and yeah. they named their prize. Yeah, it's, that's the kind of it's um, that's the world that confuses me. The people who feel like, but 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 we're huh? us. What about us? Yeah, I agonize. I mean, I don't get like a million incoming offers, but I do. Ag- I've agonized over how to say no to something. Yeah, because sometimes I go. Hey, I'm not available, and then then they're gonna write back. Oh, when you like, you mentioned this in your uh, show last night about being asked. Yeah, there's a. I, I am often mistaken um, for being Jewish, and it seems lots of Jewish newspapers and magazines and websites have written about me being Jewish and reviewed me as if I uh, their, their purpose for being there is to see what this Jewish comedian is doing next, and I'm not. I, I, I'm just absolutely not. I was not. I don't think I met a Jew until I was in my twenties. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not even like it. It's just so not a part of my background, and I don't know what I'm doing to give off this vibe, other than having a name that ends with man. I don't know what else is really. Yeah, I wouldn't peg you as Jewish. People. No, exactly. I, I and I'm because I'm not. That isn't a part of my background. I have this kind of paranoia that when I say, I'm, but I'm not. It sounds like I'm saying, how dare you? And I feel I worry that I'm causing offence by denying that I'm Jewish. But I don't mean any offence. I'm just correcting someone who's wrong. But, yeah, I got this email that was, like, from a dame something or other who wanted me to host this event, and it was for a charity called the Young Jewish Philanthropist Network or something. And it was really clear that they were asking me because they thought I was Jewish and, and it was a kind of charity I would choose to be associated with as a result of that and just trying to compose a reply that conveyed not only that I couldn't do it because I was busy but also sort of slipped in a a bit of sort of gentileness about me (laughs) or just sort of let them know that they were wrong without without making it sound like a I was upset at the thought or b I was patronizing or being dismissive just treading on eggshells and trying not to cause offense about that kind of stuff yeah, I actually had the reverse happen once where someone was – I did some show and they're like, there were three Jews on the show and they named them then three non-Jews and they listed me and I am Jewish. <laughs> and I tracked this person down and I was going, just – you said I wasn't Jewish. I'm not the most religious guy in the world, but I am Jewish. Yeah. And I did, did, I just feel like we just wing it. You just go, I don't think he's Jewish. Like, do you look it up anywhere? You can I, ask me. Yeah. The trouble is if people look me up, they can find sources that say I am Jewish. Right. Um. There's that thing, if you put anyone's name into Google, any any famous person especially, you put any famous name into Google, the autocorrect will suggest either gay, dead, or Jewish. <laughs> like, I think there's, a, there's probably a game to play to see which one of those three things right. come up first. Is it gay, dead, or Jewish? Because that's everyone wants to know about different levels. Oh, or married, that's the other thing. So you put sort of Zach Braff, and the autocorrect will say Jewish or gay or married, or dead. It's always one of those four things for any celebrity. I think there's probably a format in this. I probably shouldn't have told you. No, just, I think... I've just I, given something away. I think I've, I've noticed that myself. Where you, <laughs> sometimes you can, yeah, you type, like, the first three letters. And yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, okay. That's not what I was asking. Yeah. But now that you've suggested it, is Tom Hanks gay? Oh. <laughs> well, uh, how much time do you... I mean, much of your show was about the internet and about Twitter and... Yeah. A good job... How much? How many hours a day do you spend, and um, how many of those hours do you think are wasted hours? At the moment, actually, not that much. But that's because 
I don't have a smartphone in New York. I kind of I've I've turned my smartphone off and bought a little pay as you go thing to uh-huh. kind of get by, and so it's really it's really freeing, not obsessing about what Twitter is saying right now and not being connected. I'm actually really enjoying that. But in in England, when I'm there normally, it's just kind of constant. I can't. I couldn't possibly quantify the number of hours because it's take. Like I tell you what, I was in Australia a little while ago. Um, and my wife and I were there for a festival, was there for a couple of weeks, and we bought really cheap pay-as-you-go phones, kind of like the ni- 1990s phones with batteries that last for six days because they're doing nothing. <laughs> and they've got nothing on them, like maybe a game of Snake, but nothing. And at that festival, I would kind of go off and do like a radio interview in the morning. And so my wife and I would be texting each other saying, oh, I'm going to be finished about 11 and I'll meet you at such a place or whatever. And I'd, I'd come out of the radio studio, get in the car, turn my phone on, and I would find myself doing this unconscious thing of reaching into my pocket. I'm on a 20-minute cab ride, and I reach into my pocket, and I take my phone out, and I turn it on, and I look at it. I think, what am I looking at it for? There's only one other person in the world who's really <laughs> going to communicate with me, and, and we've just exchanged it. Like, she knows what's going on now. There's no extra message going to come. And I was kind of looking at it out of habit. Because in London, in that situation, I put my hand in my pocket, I bring my phone out and I look at Twitter and I maybe read an article that someone's linked to and I just, I look to my phone immediately for for sucker, to kind of, to suckle on the teat of the internet, to, to ingest some information in some form. And I'm looking at this phone that can't do it for me. It, it doesn't, it's not connected to anything. There's only a few people who could text me. Nothing else is going to happen. And I realise I'm being an idiot and I put it in my pocket. And two minutes later... My hand's in my pocket again, taking the phone out. It's like a cigarette addict, like, looking for the packet of cigarettes, just out of habit. I can't help it. Yeah, I've, I've found myself just where I have to... I'm almost, like, waking from a bad dream where you're yeah, like, yeah. holy shit, I just got, like, got hypnotized. Yeah, yeah, completely. I, I get sit lost. on my own couch. I, I mean, there's a thing in the show I say about... Um, I don't know what happens, but my wife will say something like, can you tell me how much... How can you find out how much a waste disposal unit costs? And I say, yeah, sure, 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 sure. And I open the laptop, and like it's three hours later, and I'm looking at a website belonging to an Alaskan private detective, and I can't join the dots of how I got there. I don't know what I've done, what I googled and then clicked and got distracted by, and go down these kind of rabbit runs on the internet, and it just absorbs everything. What I never do is is go on the internet thinking, what can I find for my show? Like all the stuff that I talk about in the show that connects that stuff, it's stuff I just bumped into right. living life on the internet. I, it's never stuff I went looking for with. Specific yeah, I would think intent. it'd be hard to like look for something. Like I'm going to find something weird today. And that's yeah, what I could talk about. Yeah, yeah, and I have a kind of rule with myself. I do a a TV thing at home, which is very like the live thing I'm doing here. Um, is that we never discuss things on the show that have been found from, like, BuzzFeed or... Yeah, somebody else has already done they that. Beat That's you there the for, for yeah. humour already. Someone's already collected it. And our job is not to be a web aggregator. It is kind of... If I've bumped into it in real life, then it's legit. And, and if it's something that the internet has already collected and said, look at this weird stuff, then that's what... You know, that's fine. That's done. No one else needs to be adding to that. So I kind of rule out that kind of stuff. Have you ever used it for, like, a... like? A customer service to resolve something like that. Um, I did it recently with with an airline because I was. They were like, "Well, coming back, I was on this airline where there was it was." They said you can cancel your flight, no penalty because the storm is coming. Mm-hmm. But I'd already checked in, and they're like, 
oh, you can't cancel online because you've checked in. Like, I don't know why I can't. Yeah, yeah. So I had to call them. And then it was just like, on, and you had to call before you got on the flight to cancel it officially. Okay. And then <laughs> I called and I was on, like, it was like 40 minutes and I already booked another earlier flight. So I was like, I don't want to be on up all night Yeah. with the first airline and then have to wake up too hard. So I tweeted and it took care of it over Twitter. I just said, hey, do I have to be on your phone line all night? And then there is a thing, I think, because they're so scared of public humiliation, that all the big companies have got their front line best staff on Twitter, not on the phone lines, because on the phone lines, it's one person and a customer. And no one knows what's being said other than that customer. But on Twitter, it's it can get magnified. Whether you're Todd Barry or anyone, it can get magnified. You only need somebody else to see it and retweet it, and it kind of grows and snowballs. And so they're shit scared of bad things happening in plain view. And yeah, you it's can... often the best place to, to go to get customer service. I don't think I've done it in a sort of dick-swinging, look at how many followers I've got kind of i don't think of it no i i did it i mean i didn't even put a period before the airline's name but i did it like <laughs> hey i'm just asking you directly can you help me with this yeah yeah i didn't go hey fucking jet blue yeah i revealed who it was but they handled it well <laughs> hey jet blue why did you fucking uh, like throw them under the bus kind of situation yeah yeah but there is um it's a they are just so scared that that's where they put all their best people i think so, yeah, that's definitely a useful um, – but that, it's kind of self-defeating because now nobody calls them and everyone knows that's true. And so everyone goes to Twitter first and they can't quite handle it. They haven't got enough people doing that. I think that. there's a, there's probably a lot of people who wouldn't think to. I think there's a weird thing they do. Uh, I, I find this an odd behavior of kind of corporate things on Twitter. Like if anyone is following a corporation on Twitter – they're not following them because they're really interested in what that corporation is up to. They're probably following them because they had a complaint once and they had to follow them the in order message. to exchange some direct <laughs> messages and they forgot to unfollow them afterwards. But the way those accounts have a kind of, hi, guys, it's Frank here. I'm going to be tweeting for the next four hours. Any queries, let me know, kind of. I just, like, you're not our friend. Like, that's not... Yeah, you're a toilet paper company. When that shows up in my account, I don't think... Oh, that's nice. That's, that's Frank's there. That's cool. That's, I just think, shut up and wait for... We contact you and you reply to us. You don't have to be on the front foot pretending that we've all followed you out of some deep fascination with the toilet paper industry. I was like, that's not how it works. <laughs> this is the fun company. Yeah. There's a weird... I've done stuff like this in one of the shows before of, of companies trying to make their website a place to hang out. Like... There's a, a, a company make dishwasher tablets in the UK that might be here, they might not. I've got Finnish dishwasher tablets, right? And they have this website which was kind of, you know, come to our website, review us, leave it. And, like, and 200 people have gone to finnish.co.uk and told them what they think of their dishwashing tablets. You know, what possible motivation have you got for hanging out there? And they've tried to make it a destination. And it's <laughs> like, you're not Facebook, you're not. A place we want to connect with our friends the only thing you want on a, a website belonging to a company that makes dishwasher tablets is like what's in your dishwasher tablets what's the science behind it what are the frequently asked questions what's what are the harmful chemicals what are you doing for the environment Th those are the kind of questions people might want to ask you i don't and even have maybe, that many questions <laughs> maybe 
are there any stockists near me or something? But given that you're a massive brand, everyone knows the answer is yes. Every every store within a half mile of your house has them. You know, so you don't need. That's basically all you need. This is what's in it. This is how we make it work. This is why we're better than others. You know, like a bit of advertising for curious yeah. people, but not this kind of. Hey, while you're here, sit back, put your feet up, play a game. Do that. What are they getting out of that? What possible engagement does do people feel towards a dishwashing tablet company? <laughs> I don't get it. Do you really? ever uh, get free stuff? Do you ever write, try to get free stuff out of being a celebrity? No, I'm not. Well, I think you might be overestimating my celebrity, but I, I have never. You might be underestimating how much free shit you can get. <laughs> that is also true, I suppose. I've gotten quite a few things. Really? Yeah. I mean, I just do it a... Do it in a jokey way, and I'll, and sometimes I'll just say I'm ask I'll ask for something that someone else who I didn't even ask will be like, I'll send you some stuff, and then they well, they send you, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, I got eight, eight bags of popcorn on my. I'm always, I I, I think there's a weird a kind of a karmic debt, if someone gives you free stuff, you then feel some obligation, to do something for them further down the line and that i don't want to ever put myself into debt with yeah i'll people. never i mean i i've i've gotten stuff and i'll and always say i'm never going to tweet about this i'm never going to hold up the candy yeah. you gave me i did and years ago still sent it. It, it, I, I discussed this in in my most recent book um years ago the first ever smartphone i got i got because a pr person called me and said it's a Motorola Dext, I think it was called. We've got these new smartphones. Would you like one? Um, you know, it's, it's yours if you want it. You don't have to, but we'd really appreciate a tweet if you if you could or whatever. And they sent me this smartphone. And I'd been very resistant to a smartphone. And in a way, I mean, you know, I'm glad I got it because I wouldn't not have one now. It kind of drew me into that world and I understood the benefits yeah. of it because I, I got this free one. And I did, I sent a tweet out which is so gauche and so awkward and so horrible and I look, I've deleted it now. And I, when I was writing the book, I, I Googled and, and found five or six other celebrities who'd all tweeted about this phone in, in the same week. And it, just the, the ugliness of this world in which these people were all... And somebody like, like the former England rugby captain, who's a millionaire and has no need of the freebie. And just what is going through your mind? At what point in the world do you think, yeah, I'll have a free phone and say I like it? Yeah. And also, I mean, I mean, I do it in a jokey way, even though I benefit from. But I like if I actually did the tweet, "Hey, thank you, Billy's yeah. Popcorn Company." Then it's almost like being you're kind of saying, "Hey, I get free shit." Yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm doing that now. Or... But it was <laughs> it's it was all it's the thing with Twitter that I like, and I think there's a, a rule now, certainly in the UK. There's some, I think it might be a legal thing now where if you're advertising on Twitter, you have to have hashtag ad. Or I've seen that. Uh, yeah, I didn't know if that was a, I think a rule. There's a, or not. There's a, I think it's certainly in the UK. I think there is now some legal imperative that you have to acknowledge that you've been paid for it, which I kind of, I think I approve of. I think there's a kind of, like, if you're doing a commercial on TV, you are getting paid so much money. It doesn't matter if you're an extra in a commercial on TV, you're being paid a shitload of money. That's a re that's where the biggest money in the whole of the industry is in commercials. And the reason for that is you're compromising yourself. There's a part of you that is for sale, and the audience understands that that is the deal. And so you have to be really well rewarded because you kind of give up a little bit on some credibility for it, and it's a trade-off and, and whatever. And I don't have a moral objection to advertising. And I think the audience watches it, and they understand, well, 
he doesn't necessarily think that's the best supermarket. He that's clearly, you know, clearly they understand that money has changed hands and they get it. And then people ask you to do a tweet in return for some t-shirts or like, <laughs> you know, it's like some small free shit. That's so much more that should be really well reward, rewarded actually because the audience isn't in on the deal. Like, when they're watching on TV, they're thinking, yeah, he got paid shitloads for that. I mean, he doesn't really think that. I mean, he might like that. I mean, he might not. We don't really know. And they judge it on whether they think it's a funny ad or, or whatever. But when they see it on Twitter, they they do think that's what you think. Like, the the barriers aren't between them and you. There's nothing in there that makes them think, I bet he's been paid for that. There was a, a celebrity chef in the UK who just kept tweeting recipes involving mushrooms. And it turns out they were being paid by the Mushroom Bureau. <laughs> just, just all like, mushrooms? Yeah, yeah. It oh, was always, fine. my favourite thing, easily rustle up is a mushroom omelette, and here's how you do it. And then the next day, it's like, chicken and mushroom surprise. Except they were actually putting mushroom and chicken surprise, which no, is not the order that anyone has ever put those Does they words dessert in. have a nice mushroom cake? Yeah, right. it was that kind of, uh, and then it, it turned out they were actually being paid by the Mushroom Bureau. But because they're a chef, and that's what we know them for, them tweeting a recipe doesn't seem... But you think that's kind of what they do. Yeah, he probably does use mushrooms. Yeah. Because all chefs use mushrooms. But for that to be every day the thing that they're mentioning. Yeah, like... Hang on a minute. (laughs) Mix it up, my friend. Yeah. There's got to be some other foods you like. The idea that anyone is paying someone... There was another one where someone was being paid to tweet about potatoes. I... You know, to influence potato sales. They were hoping a pretty girl mentioning potatoes a lot would... (laughs) I, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to have to try these potatoes now. I've heard, I've heard so things. much about potatoes. I've always. heard good things. She's pretty. Yeah. And I'm going to try some fries. The idea that that's what Twitter... So your latest book is called Too Much Information. It's about this kind of thing? Or... Yeah, it's kind of... Um, uh, it crosses over with some stuff that's in, in the current show, um, but there's a whole load of other stuff in there as well. It's like a series of essays. And I think that the theory behind it for me was that we're just being bombarded by so much information with advertising. And I, I grew up in a world where literally when I was born, there were three TV channels in the UK. And that was true until I was in my teens. I remember the very first time I, I watched the very first half hour on Britain's fourth TV channel um, as a young kid. Only in, in my 20s did we go into the world that we have now. It's like hundreds of TV channels doing 24 hours a day and stuff. Um, and the news media has spiralled and, and the kind of the smartphone thing and advertising everywhere. There is never a moment in your day now where someone isn't clamouring for your attention one way or another. And I think we filter most of it out. We kind of don't take in what the adverts are on the bus or the subway or whatever. You just sort of you've trained your brain to pick out the bits that you think are for you or, or that bring you some entertainment or whatever. But actually, mo- because of that, they're shouting louder. They're kind of clamoring even harder for your attention and and most of it's just garbage and I, it's basically as, as a book that's saying stop and look at all this stuff that's around us and look how much of it is nonsense and then maybe you'll feel better about all that noise that's around you if you kind of think it's it's a load of garbage and you you, you know may, i don't know quite what you're meant to think and take away from it but there's things like adverts on tv for like uh cosmetics um and they'll have you know this mascara makes your eyelashes look longer or whatever and in the foot of the screen in small print 
it will say um, according to 36% of 27 women. Oh, really? Like less than half of a really small sample. You've you've not even... (laughs) There's nothing backing this up. It's like tiny numbers. One of them was... uh, 99 women was quite a common one, which is like you haven't even gone to the rigorous position of science occupied by family feud. You're asking 99 <laughs> women for a thing, and less than half of them are agreeing with your message. 100 is so much easier to figure out the percentage. Yeah. And you, like, what was motivating them to not ask a 100th person? Like, how scared were they of, of the percentage getting worse if they asked one more person? I wonder if that's like a legal thing or if they think 99 sounds like more than 100. I don't know what it is. Because I, I, some of them are 99, some of them are like 48 people. They're really, they're tiny sample sizes. And I think, You've spent how many millions of dollars getting a supermodel to front this campaign and you're making this claim verbally while your small print is telling us it's not true. I mean, if 36% of people agree that that was what it did for them, like most people would say that failed. Yeah, it's like these side effects disclaimers on drugs, which I don't. That seems like a relatively new thing. I don't remember that ten years ago, but now it's just like that's that's one of those real culture shocks for a, a British person. But we don't have adverts for those things at all. Oh, no? On the because we have a national health service, oh. and so we expect our doctor like we we get free health care. It's a wonderful thing. Free's <laughs> uh, good, and uh, you know you've paid for it. Yeah, everyone everyone pays their national insurance, and and the result is that there's this free health care for everyone. There was a thing a while ago where where somebody on an American news network described uh, the British healthcare system as as communism, and and made this point. It's another thing. Like recently, a guy on Fox said that the city of Birmingham in Britain was now a Muslim only area, a no go zone for for non Muslims. It's one hundred percent not true. I'm from about fifty miles from there. I grew up near there. I go there quite often still. It's it's just fundamentally not true. And there was another thing where this guy said on, on one of the networks on American TV, that, you know, the British public, they hate their health service. It's communism and they're rebelling against it. British people love the National Health Service. Twitter just, you know, exploded in ridicule for this kind of statement. But because we have a National Health Service, so you go to your doctor and he tells you what he thinks is wrong with you and then prescribes some medicine for you, you don't have a market in that world. So there's no need for adverts saying, ask your doctor for this. Like, we're better than this one, get this one instead of that one. Like, ask for it. Which is why you get these adverts with these kind of side effects include death. Kind of small... There's one that was like weird thoughts, I think. was Yeah, yeah, suicidal thoughts. Yeah. And it, it blows my mind. I mean, if... If there's an argument, politically, there's things going on at home now where people are talking, it feels slowly they are privatising the National Health Service. We are heading down the road of the American path. At some point, that is going to be the future. I hope it won't be, but it feels like it's going that way. And you could argue morally about doing that, but don't do it for the sake of television. Because if they do it, we'll have TV adverts like you have TV adverts for, for all these things. And as far as I can tell, America is constipated. I've never... I've never seen an advert for laxatives on British TV. And you see every other advert, it seems to me. It's all those fish and chips. You don't need them. Yeah. It's, American adverts are for the things that will constipate you 
and then for the things that will unconstipate you. It's the it's the bad food, and then the the medical relief. Yeah, there is. Um, I'm sh- I know a lot of comedians. I haven't heard anyone mention it lately, and I haven't seen the ads lately. But they, they, like five years ago, there was started being ads for restless leg syndrome. Yeah, which is like I ne- not only I've never heard of it, but there must be so many people who have it that they're. You know, getting it. I've, I've heard of it. I think have I you? have it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Is it just yeah. fidgety leg? Yeah, it's just like your legs only twitches at night. It's quite a common oh, thing. Then there's I have a, that there's also. a band called Half Man Half Biscuit who I love. It's a, a very arcane British uh, band, and one of their songs is is uh, about restless leg syndrome. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to so. check that out on Spotify. Yeah. Half man, half biscuit. If I could introduce one American who would enjoy half man, half biscuit, then my work here is done. Are they sort of a witty band? Uh, yeah, they're very. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they're very funny at times. Very in a very sort of dry, sardonic kind of way. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a really big, really big fan. One of their songs from the '80s had a lyric in it. Um, uh, a million housewives every day pick up a tin of beans and say, "What an amazing example of synchronicity." Uh, another one of their lyrics was, "I don't understand that one." Uh, just the idea that all these women are picking up a tin of beans at exactly the same moment. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, okay, there was another one which was uh, when I had my loft converted back into a loft. <laughs> that's a nice lyric. Yeah, There's lots of one. things like that in their in their stuff. Half half man, half biscuit. biscuit. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to look them it's up. It's not the catchiest of names. No, it's a but kind they of are, a... they're geniuses, I think. Are they pretty popular over there? Um, they have a cult following. Yeah. Yeah. They they're not. They're not. You know, they're not in the charts, but they've been going for a very long time, and they will always they have a have solid an career. Audience. Yeah, absolutely. I get yeah. you. Do you think? Uh, I feel like the internet, the information is made. I feel like it's shortened my attention span. Like, I feel like I can't even read a magazine article in one sitting like I used to. I don't know if it's just because I'm looking. I I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I I thought about it in in terms of TV because there's, I think it's a kind of, um, it's become a a belief that people have a shortened attention span that's self-defeating because... In the world of TV, people go, oh, no, no, you can't do that. People have got short attention spans these days. You need to keep keep it moving, keep the energy, keep doing this, keep turning it around, doing something new so that people don't leave. And actually, I think doing lots of short, bitty things encourages a short attention span. Yeah. If everything is made up of discrete little 30-second sections, then there's no reason for you, after four of those things, to not think, well, I'll go away and come back because... They'll be doing another one of those things. Actually doing something that holds their attention for 15 minutes is rewarding. And actually, that's what makes them not flip around, is the idea that I want to know what happens next. Yeah, you've locked like, them in a little bit. Yeah. And I, if the, if everyone thinks that people have got short attention spans, then everyone delivers things to you that reward a short attention span, and then it becomes true, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But actually, good stuff that holds people's attention still works. It's just harder and harder to persuade people to let you do good stuff that rewards attention. Yeah, it's sort of like you you train yourself to have a short attention span by. Yeah, it's so if if you go to a buffet, you'll keep picking at bits and you'll walk away and come back and and what. But if you go to a nice, if you have a really nice meal, you'll sit down and enjoy a meal. And I just think give people meals. It's much more satisfying in terms of entertainment to kind of. 
like you don't worry about going to the movie theater. You don't worry that you've got a short attention span going there, do you? Like that's not. No, but I mean it is. I you know it depends on where I watch the movie. Like watching movie, like the best place for me to watch movies either in a theater. Or on a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my house, I get a little, like, I rewind and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, I didn't hear yeah. that. Or, but I'm also crazy. Yeah. Well, that's like being surrounded by so much that can can get you. But I I just think, I don't think people's attention spans have diminished. I think the competition for their attention has increased. And the people who respond to the idea that, that, that their attention span has diminished by offering them tinier even more bite-sized chunks are handling it wrong that's absolutely not the way to hold people's attention yeah i mean i think one the good thing that's come out of it's like sometimes i'll compose a tweet and like <laughs> it's like oh it's we're looking at 190 characters and it's kind of fun to trim it down and like oh i still made this work yeah yeah uh and, and you see like web series sometimes someone will send me a web series or something that's like 17 minutes are you fucking <laughs> There's no way you couldn't have done this in four and a half minutes. But, I mean, that's probably because of my own, because of what's happened to me, or maybe because of... No, it's definitely true that, you know, if you're looking at anything on YouTube, it's got to be really good to hold your attention because it's on a screen where there are 20 other links <laughs> immediately there trying to get your attention. So it, it's put itself into that competitive environment. But if someone's paid money to sit in a theatre or, you know, actually sat down at the right time and turned the TV on because there's a show they want to watch, then those people should be rewarded for making that choice. Like, you're not trying to get all the people who are flicking. Like, the people who are flicking are not your audience. Right. You're trying to get... You're trying to engage the people who've chosen to sit there and watch this and want to follow. And... Don't treat them like idiots because you're worried about all those other idiots who are flicking around hoping that... You know, comedy especially doesn't work like... You know, if you're in a, like that thing in, in shitty clubs where people are talking and they're like, well, it's your job to get my attention, man. And the moment they look up is when they hear other people laughing because that's when they go, oh, a funny thing must have happened. But that's exactly the wrong moment to look up because you've just missed the deal. And then what you're what you're engaging in is the beginning of the next bit, and that's not funny. That's the setup, and so you go, nah, boring, and you start talking to your friends again. Right. It's not music. It doesn't have a good beat. It's not going to get to you in your subconscious. You have to tune in and give it attention to be rewarded by it. You have that's the deal. Well, that's a classic thing for people who are maybe get called out on talking in a comedy show. Like, yeah, it wasn't funny. Well, you weren't listening to it, so yeah, how you yeah. know if it, was, it yeah, might yeah. have been really funny, but you're listening to your conversation. Yeah. But that, that's that, it's that tuning in when they hear laughter. Their brain has gone, oh, something funny just happened. I'm, I'm giving it. No, don't get it. There's nothing funny here. You've actually had all the evidence that something funny happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you suddenly tuned in. But your, uh, your show, PowerPoint presentation, that's going to be done January 31st here in New York? It is, yeah. Okay, this will yeah, probably be You've got to turn this around pretty quickly. I have to. <laughs> this is li- has to be a live all. podcast. <laughs> uh, this might be on after January 31st. That's okay. That's okay. But it's you, you sold a lot of tickets, right? It's doing fine, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it's basically two weeks. And the it was full last was, uh, night. A little I quieter than the second, and it's kind of built, uh, which is the point, I guess. You kind of, um, the the first Tuesday was the quietest night. This week's Wednesday was so far the busiest so far. So it's kind of, it's built every day. It's got 
bigger than the last. I think my promoted tweet I did about it helped. I think that really helped. <laughs> I, think the, I think that was good for three tickets. It was good. No, that was a that was a. I sensed. I sensed a uh, a Barry crowd in one night. Oh, did you? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart, smart people. Absolutely. And you're uh, so you're going to go on tour though, right? In the in the UK. I am. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a. I've, I did a tour last year, October through December, um, and. It's an extension of that. It's a, it's a, it's not the show I'm doing in New York at the moment, but it's an extension of that show I was doing in the UK before. But it's a PowerPoint show as well. It's another right? PowerPoint show. Yeah. So you have two PowerPoint shows. Um. Yeah. It's kind of what I do. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen all your shows. Well, yeah, yeah. No, show, but, but... It, it's kind of like I guess this the one I'm doing in New York at the moment was the first one that was a stand-up show that was using PowerPoint rather than a narrative one sort of story being told. With right. evidence and and stuff, which is what the other ones were, um, and then and then the current tour that I'll be doing in the UK in in the autumn is uh, is the second of that kind of thing where it's it's observational stand up. It's just backed up with lots of audio visual stuff. I think in basically in an hour I use something like seven hundred and fifty slides. I don't think the audience perceive that as being the case. Yeah, it I feels would like never would have like fifty or something. Yeah. but it's actually there's so many little transitions and changes I'm doing to kind of. So that it, I feel like I'm doing a double act with a screen, like that. It's a kind of crosstalk thing going have, on. Have you ever had a director? You don't. No, no, you just. No, I guess you don't necessarily need it if if you're controlling all the visuals. That, that's the thing people most often ask. Technically, is like, how do you know when to press the button? And they're imagining that it's a script that I've tightly learned and. That every button press is in this script, and it looks like a real technical feat. And it's it's the other way around. I'm I'm moving my words around the button. It's not I'm putting the button in in with the words. Do you know what I mean? I I know what the next picture is, and sometimes I've said it slightly differently, and I know not to press the button yet, and I need to reposition the joke and sort of move forward again, and sort of, and actually it's it's because I'm in control. It's because there isn't a technician following a script pressing a button for me. I don't have to learn anything. I, so I can be kind of loose and tell it slightly differently night after night. Because okay. I time when the visuals come in. I was actually curious about that when I was watching. I was like, wow, this really has to be pretty locked in. Yeah, it, it becomes it. If you do it night after night, then you end up by default sort of becoming a bit locked in. But if I take a week off and do it, the same show will go as well, but it'll be phrased ever so slightly differently. And I'm just timing when is the funny moment to press the button against the words, not learning a script really precisely. When If you take a week off, do you have to... What do you have to do? To, can you just dive right in and do it again, or do you have to? Do you practice it at your house or something? Or? I've never rehearsed it ever. Okay, I, I can't. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to. I mean, just for memory, just for. I'll I'll sort of look at the PowerPoint sometimes. If a week off, I, I'll be fine. Muscle memory will carry me after a week off. With this show, because I hadn't done this show for a year or more before I brought it here, I had to kind of just. I've I've got a video of it one of the UK dates so I kind of was watching that and and what I found is I'd remember 10 minutes on one sort of theme that's growing and changes and and what I had to learn was sort of six junctions six things where I'm segueing from one thing to another and hopefully the audience don't even really notice them they kind of melt into the background you can't quite work out how I went from the thing about people thinking I'm Jewish to the thing about people mistaking me for anyone else with a beard. You kind of, I just need those, I need to learn six things. And then all of a sudden the whole show's there. 
with that's yeah no it, it, you did bounce it I, yeah it is interesting how you don't necessarily need like segway i mean you have segways but you but, don't need you yeah. can link things that aren't related yeah yeah completely is what i mean yeah. yeah 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 there's a way of of making it feel like the thematic connection between a and b that it doesn't it doesn't feel like a now moving on kind of another thing yeah it's not one kind of, of seamless yeah and trying to make it like that so if i learn those six things i find that when i then am in the bit I just, I just know it. I don't know. I've never really struggled at that that bit. the The hardest part is is relearning it for a thing because when I first do it, I don't write it down. I just, it's a process of doing it night after night, and every night I'll go away and change the PowerPoint a little bit because I, I, I knew I wanted something different to have happened, and and I just learn it by doing it in front of audiences, and then when I revive it. I actually have to remember how it used to be. I like that, and and it grew and it evolved and it became a thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a. How did I go from there to that? And I need the video to kind of remind myself what. Yeah, it's weird are. what you can remember and what you can't. Re like sometimes I'll remember a joke I did like 23 years ago, and like, oh, I could do that word for word. Do you find there's a thing where you remember other comics acts better than your own from the past? And then do them on stage? <laughs> not that bit, but I, many, many years ago. I used to do shows, not with PowerPoint, but with like old-fashioned slides, in uh -huh. like 35-millimeter slides in projectors and things. And I was driving quite a distance to a show, and I suddenly felt the blood fall from me. I'd, I'd forgot. I knew I'd got the projectors, but I hadn't brought the slides. So my show was screwed. I was four hours from home, one hour from the venue. Oh, God. And I was like can't do the show and I, I called my manager and was like can you tell them I've had a car accident I don't think I don't know how to do this I haven't got the slides and they were like no you you have to go and do a show you've you've got to do a show they've sold tickets there you know it's not an option just you have to go and do a show and I so I was like okay I'll I'll have to do like stand up like regular one man and a mic stand up I can't do the audio visual I don't know and I had to call a guy who had done a load of support shows with me from five years earlier. And I called him and was like, tell me what I used to say. <laughs> and he knew my old act because he'd been on tour supporting me. Like, and so he'd heard it 50 times. But I'd said it hundreds of times, you know, yeah. like, like thousands of times. But also that night you weren't ready to do it. So. Yeah. And, and he was coaching me through it. And I was making notes based on it. And I could have told him his act from that 10 years ago. How'd well. that show go? Okay, tricky. But did it have a title like that was meant for it the? It did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what we ended up doing was putting the screens up. I had two screens. I used doing do different types of projection at the same time, and we put them up. And I and I explained why I wasn't going to be using them. Um, and so they came clean. They kind of went with that, and and they they yeah. I kind of talked my way out of it. Wow. But it was it was horrible. But there is a weird. I can remember details of acts I was on the circuit with 15, 20 years ago, really clearly. And yeah, I don't I, know my own. Yeah, I've, I, I will quote jokes from people. Yeah. Oh, I saw this on the John, when Johnny Carson was hosting The Tonight Show. I saw him, I'm going to do this. But, uh, well, Dave, what? so when did the tour starts in the UK? Uh, not until October. Um, uh, oh, really? Not yeah, yeah. Oh. I, go, I go home from this and I, I, I do a TV thing on a network called Dave, um, which is really inconvenient, incidentally. <laughs> but it, people always go, oh, it's nice, isn't it? It's Dave and you're Dave. 
it just every time I'm talking to a friend and I say, oh yeah, I'm doing this thing for Dave. I think, oh, I sound like a really one of those arrogant like Kanye who starts talking about himself in the <laughs> third person, and I have to clarify and add. I mean, not me, you know, the channel, Dave, them, yeah. So <laughs> I'm doing a thing for them. Uh, it's a third series, which will take me from February till August. What's that series called? Uh, it's called Modern Life Is Goodish, um, uh, which is a kind of each show is an hour long. Kind of like an hour-long version of what I do live, basically. But we do it in a little venue with an audience. and Oh, cool. So it's like doing eight specials a year. And it's on BBC? Or? No, it's on it's on Dave. Oh, Dave. Oh, you just Dave. told yeah, me yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You just told me Yeah. That. But I didn't expect, you know, I wouldn't expect you to be so familiar with the UK TV That's landscape. Right. I, I, I to, never heard of Dave before. Things. Exactly. It's, uh, they're, really, they're really good. I really like them. They've been really uh, good with the show. But it is. It's like doing eight specials a year. So that will take me from February to August. Oh, man. Um, and then I'll go on tour. Well, that sounds good. And then UK tour, you can, the venues are like, these are usually close enough where you can come home every night. Is that true? Or, no, not. No, no I'm trying. I'll get home a bit, but no, if you, a lot of the time you're, it's a big country and not compared yeah. to America, obviously, but traveling around it, I'll come home if it's less than two hours, but you, but something, you're not going to come home if it's, two and a half hours to get home and then that yeah, makes it a five hour journey the next day yeah. you know you, you're going to stay somewhere and so I was wrong with what I, yeah. I basically I was wrong well it is good I do think Britain is the best place in the world for anyone who's starting in comedy I think there's more comedy clubs per square mile uh -huh. than anywhere else in the world yeah I always like working over there I think it's kind of like you have pay to play over here does that still happen that yeah new clubs my are... podcast is like that so I'm going to need a hundred quid from you but that's uh, like that doesn't happen in the UK. There's two or three people who have tried to make it happen, and there's been like rebellion in the ranks. And I wonder if that'll be the next thing to happen. It. Yeah, I mean, it's not some of there are flat out pay to play. Then there's the bringer shows, which yeah, is yeah. your we friends pay yeah. so you can play. We don't have any of that. If you wanted to start, if you'd never done comedy before and you were thinking of starting, London is far and away the best city you can get so much stage time in a relatively short space of time compared to anywhere else in the world. And then when you do tour, like, if you're touring the States, you're flying constantly to get to the next big population centre yeah. is a flight away. Well, you can drive around the UK, you know, like every 40 or 50 miles up the road, there's a town of 50,000, 60,000 people with a theatre that seats 800 to 1,500 people that you can play and you can fill. and you can, So you can see more audiences in a shorter space of time than you can in the States. I should do that. Yeah, you should. I'll look into that. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. It's davegorman.com, right? It is, yes. Is there anything else that, is... that they should know about? Not really. <laughs> no. I'm just, I always think people are smart enough to find yeah, it yeah, if yeah. they want to find it. Really? Yeah. And the people who aren't smart enough to find it, you know, I'm not. Proud. Yeah, <laughs> if you can't figure out my website based on my name, don't come to my shows. Yeah, but uh, that's him. I I still want you to come to my shows. Toddberry.com. I would recommend you go to Todd Barry's <laughs> shows as well. But then you're listening to the podcast. You don't need my endorsement of Todd Barry. <laughs> well, thanks for being here, Dave. It's my pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Feral Audio. 
This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase.